from the uh, University of Texas, Austin. Carl and I have known one another through ASA meetings for almost as long as I've known Martin Price. But uh, we'll basically give the time now to Carl. He's going to be talking about fertilizing the ocean with artificial upwelling. Well, I changed the title of my presentation to Heat Exchange Method of Artificial Upwelling. Is this on? Yes, I turned mine off, I think. Okay, can you hear me now? The title is now Heat Exchange Method of Artificial Upwelling. First, I'm going to explain what natural... Can you move up a little closer here? I can't see it. Okay. Uh, Let's see if we can get... I think we're having a little trouble here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Is that better? Does that help? Does that help? I don't know if it's, tar- it's yeah, turned on. It's turned on. If I talk down like this, I can hear it. I'm not quite sure where to put it any closer here. Put it on his nose. Well, let's see how that works. <laughs> First thing I'm going to do is explain what natural oceanic upwelling is. Then I'm going to demonstrate why some recent attempts at artificial upwelling have failed. And then I'm going to introduce the heat exchange method of artificial upwelling. You're the first audience to hear it. Upwelling is an ocean current with a vertical component from deep water to the surface. And it happens when the wind, can't see this, pushes the water away from an area, and the deep water comes up from below to replace it. There are specific regions in the world where upwelling occurs, shown over here in red. There is an abundance of marine life in these areas. These areas are just 1% the surface of the ocean, yet they account for 50% of fisheries catch worldwide. During the weather pattern called El Nino, upwelling does not occur along the west coast of South America, and the fishing is terrible. So why does upwelling create more fish? That's because the ocean has layers. On this graph, the X and Y axes are exchanged, so we can see ocean depth going down on the Y axis. And the X axis is percent maximum of either molecular oxygen or nutrients. Now up there at the surface of the ocean, the nutrients are at a minimum and there's an abundance of oxygen. The oxygen did not come from the air. It was created by phytoplankton, microscopic plants. More than half of the world's oxygen comes from the ocean. Now, the phytoplankton are constrained to the photic zone, which is the top 200 meters at best, because they need light for photosynthesis. Beneath the photic zone, the ocean is a reservoir of nutrients, such as phosphate and nitrate. In other words, plant fertilizer. Now, when a plant or animal dies, when it's on the land, The remains are returned to the earth, then taken up by the roots of plants. But in the deep ocean, the remains sink, and there they remain suspended in the deep water. 
Upwelling brings up the nutrients and the phytoplankton proliferate. The zooplankton eat the phytoplankton and the fish eat the zooplankton. There are times when phytoplankton grows extremely fast. This is a true color photograph of Tasmania during a bloom of algae. Now during the winter months, lack of light limits photosynthesis here. And during those months, the nutrients are building up in the water from upwelling and from runoff from the land. Then along comes spring and the sunshine, and it can take just days for the water to turn from blue to green. Most of the life in the ocean is confined to the continental shelves, and that's just 10% of the ocean. And the deep ocean, which is most of the Earth, is by comparison like a desert. Photosynthesis needs all of these. It needs the light. It needs the water. It needs the carbon dioxide. And it needs the nutrients. And in the deep ocean, the nutrients are 200 meters under the surface. So, no wonder there have been attempts at artificial upwelling. This wave-powered device was built on a federal grant by a professor at the University of Hawaii. It consists of a buoy attached to a long pipe and a one-way valve. Now, when the, the wave pushes the buoy up, it lifts the column of water. When the buoy comes down, the water passes the valve and is, and is released on the surface. And this process manages to pull up a small amount of water. You can see in the photograph. I'm going to show you why this process is limited to a small flow. This is from sometime in the 90s. This one by Atmotion is being funded by venture capitalists. And it was mentioned on the cover of Popular Science one year ago this month. This time, the one-way valve is at the bottom in that bucket. The bucket is attached to the buoy by a cord. Every wave imparts some upward momentum to this column of water in that pipe. The pipe isn't rigid. It's flexible, and that makes installation easy. And I'm going to tell you why it doesn't work. Now, these wave-powered approaches involve large pipes like this one and a buoy that rides up and down on the waves, which is not shown. This is a typical temperature profile in the Pacific off the coast of San Diego. Turns out the temperature profile is important. This particular profile I'll be using throughout the presentation. Now, the 200 and 50 meter long pipe connects the fertile water at 300 meters to the warmer water well within the photic zone at 50 meters. The diameter of the pipe is 3 meters. I matched the dimensions of the pipe that Atmotion says they are using, but I didn't draw it to scale. Because if I did, it would look like that. So for the purpose of the illustration, I'll make it wide. <clears throat> Let's look at the relevant forces. 
with no waves, there's no vertical movement of water. And these three forces are in balance, two from pressure and one from weight. The one in the middle is the weight of the mass of water contained in the pipe. And it's a mass of over 1,700 metric tons. The largest force is pushing up at the bottom. And that's the result of a pressure of 450 pounds per square inch of pressure at that depth and provides the equivalent force of a 2,100 metric ton weight. Now, when you add the pumping action, which is F4, this 1,700-ton weight will accelerate upward and find terminal velocity where it is matched by friction force, F5. Well, there's a velocity, so there's a flow, and it is working for a few minutes. And then something happens. F2 is getting larger. The water in the pipe is being replaced by relatively cooler water at 8 degrees Celsius, which is more dense and therefore heavier. This extra mass, when the pipe is completely filled with cold water, is 419 kilograms and weighs over 900 pounds. The buoy that provides the pumping must exert this much force on average in order to lift any of the cold water out of the pipe. Since the buoy can provide force only during the crest of the wave, it must have a volume of twice that much seawater or as big as four 55-gallon drums. And the wave must be large enough to submerge that volume during the crest. Only then can the deep ocean water reach the top of the pipe. And if and when it does, it will sink because it is more dense than the surrounding water. So that's why the previous attempts have failed. Now, in a new approach, we're not going to ignore the relationship between temperature and density. Rather, we're going to take advantage of it. If we want the water at 300 meters to move to 50 meters, we have to change the temperature of the water that is at 300 meters from 8 degrees Celsius to 12 degrees Celsius. Now, it's possible to do this because the surface of the ocean provides us with two things that we need, wave power and heat. The surface of the ocean is a warmer 15 degrees Celsius. And the first thing we have to do is to move that warm surface water down to the depths. That requires a pipe that extends all the way up to the surface. <clears throat> now, I moved in closer to the surface. Notice the five meter mark there. And I placed a pipe with a top end that extends one half meter above sea level. The bottom of the pipe is at 300 meters. There are no waves at this point. If we were to pour water, oh, the sea level inside the pipe is naturally, the, the water level inside the pipe is naturally at sea level. If we were to pour water into the pipe, we would not be able to fill it because whatever we pour into the pipe falls out the bottom at 300 meters. 
You can stand there all day with a garden hose and you can't fill that pipe. We're going to let waves pour water into the pipe and we have a downflow. Now I place the top of this pipe at one half meter above sea level, but I really want to find the elevation for which I can get maximum flow. Flow in a pipe responds to the net pressure difference between the two ends in a predictable way. And the waves are affecting the pressure. The question is, at what elevation does the pressure increase the most from wave action? The dots show us how the water moves with the waves. And the dots are moving in circles. According to Milne Thompson, who wrote the textbook on theoretical hydrodynamics, the pressure moves with the water. That is to say, each black dot, representing a small particle of water, also represents a specific amount of pressure, the same pressure as when there are no waves due to the weight of the atmosphere and the water above it. The pressure does not change for that particle of fluid when it is moved in a circle due to wave action. Therefore, we can plot the pressure variation for different elevations. The wave height for this analysis will be two meters from crest to trough. We will begin at a depth of one meter below sea level where the pressure is 1.1 atmospheres when there are no waves. This is absolute pressure. That means it includes the weight of the atmosphere. Now with the waves, they cause the pressure to oscillate between one atmosphere and 1.2 atmospheres. That averages out to 1.1 atmosphere. The same pressure as when there are no waves. So we get no flow if we put the top of the pipe beneath the waves. At a depth of one half meter below sea level, the pressure with no waves is 1.05 atmospheres. And with the waves, we get this plot that has flats. The pressure on the flat is one atmosphere. This is when that elevation is exposed to the air. This flattening is the key to how we get, can get pressure from waves. The average pressure at this elevation with waves is 1.06 atmospheres, more than the no wave condition, and we can get a downward flow at this elevation. At sea level, the pressure without waves is one atmosphere. The waveform is now half rectified. Waves increase the pressure at this elevation to 1.03 atmospheres, well above the no wave condition. At an elevation of one half meter above sea level, the pressure with no waves is again one atmosphere and the water reaches this elevation for only a portion of the cycle, and the pressure caused by waves is only 1.01 atmospheres. The most effective pressure is therefore at sea level, and that is true for any wave height. At the other end of the pipe, down there at 300 meters, the waves do not affect the pressure, which remains constant. Now, if we go back to these waves and we watch them for a long time. Now, 
and then make them stop, you will notice the level in the pipe is higher than sea level. Remember that a pipe filled with cold, dense water resulted in an effective force downward. Now we have a pipe filled with warm water resulting in an upward force. If this 300 meter pipe is completely filled with a 15 degree warm surface water, this buoyant force pushes the water level up in the pipe 32 centimeters above sea level. To match this force and maintain a downflow, a wave must be four times 32 centimeters from crest to trough. Now this could pose a problem. This buoyant force is working against the downflow that we want. <clears throat> However, I'm about to show you it's not a problem because we're going to be extracting heat from this flow. This is a schematic of the heat exchanger. We are back to 300 meters of ocean. The two pipes in the top are the downflow we were just looking at. Now for the initial 50 meters of downflow, these pipes are drawn in white. White represents a pipe material that does not conduct heat. Then the downflow pipes enter the interior of a large upwelling pipe. Now the downflow pipes are drawn in block black and conduct heat for this 250 meters length of pipe. The downflow exits out the side above the entrance of the deep ocean upwelling water. The flows do not mix. So the waves do not power the upwelling. It is the job of the waves to deliver the warm surface water to the upwelling pipe. It is the heat that the warm water delivers to the cold deep water that powers the upwelling by creating a buoyancy. Now for the purpose of the illustration, I drew this figure wide and actually this heat exchanger is very tall. Also, in the figure, the arrows are moving quickly. It actually takes 15 minutes for the water to move the whole 300 meters. Shortly, I'll tell you how I know that. No moving parts are required. You only need the right kind of pipe in the right place. Those pipes with walls that conduct heat and those pipes with walls that don't. Now I put two downflows in the figure, but any number of downflows can be added to the interior of the single large upwelling pipe, all adding to the heat deposited there. This arrangement is known as a counterflow shell and tube heat exchanger in engineering textbooks. And with some specifics, we can find the rate at which heat is transferred in the heat exchanger. There is a known relationship between diameter, flow velocity, and heat conductance called the Dittus-Bolter equation. From these parameters and the properties of seawater, we get this H. Do you see the H over there? I don't have a good pointer. 
the convective heat transfer coefficient, which is in watts per square meter degree Kelvin. There's a convective heat transfer coefficient for the downflow and a different convective heat transfer coefficient for the upflow, and they will be combined. We also need to know the temperature difference between the two sides of the heat exchanger. Well, we know what temperature enters from the top, and we know the temperature that enters from the bottom, but we don't know the two exit temperatures. But we can find them if we satisfy these three conditions. The first one is from the principle of the conservation of energy, and it is that the rate that the heat energy leaves the downflow is equal to the rate that the heat energy crosses the heat exchange area. Another way to say that is that the mass downflow rate times the change of temperature of the downflow, that's the top temperature minus the bottom temperature, times the specific heat of seawater, equals the overall conductance of the heat exchanger times the area of the heat exchanger times the log mean temperature difference across the heat exchanger. The second condition is similar. The rate that the heat energy is gained in the upflow is equal to the rate that the heat energy crosses the heat exchange area. The third condition is that the magnitude of the force from the buoyancy in the upflow is equal to the magnitude of the friction force of the upflow. And that's from, okay, that's, that's from Newton's third law of motion. So, once we have specific pipe dimensions, a temperature profile in the ocean, and a wave height, we can estimate the upwelling flow. This is an estimate. This is for a heat exchanger that is 4.1 meters in diameter and contains 165 downflow pipes that are each 0.2 meters in diameter, 20 centimeters. The power crossing the heat exchanger at a wave height of one meter crest to trough is almost 25 megawatts. The upwelling rate is between one and two cubic meters per second as the wave height varies up to five meters from crest to trough. There's a hysteresis in the curve. That is because turbulent flow conducts heat much more readily than laminar flow. When we start from zero waves and then increase the wave height, we get almost nothing until about two-thirds of a meter. And then at this point, the upflow just starts to become turbulent. Now at this point, the downflow is already turbulent because it's pushed by waves, but the upflow is still laminar and slow and not very heat conductive. Well, it gains some turbulence, and this new turbulence causes it, causes it to become more heat conductive. So it gains more heat and it gets more buoyancy. Well, that increases the velocity. This extra velocity increases the turbulence. So now it becomes more heat conductive, and then it gains more heat, and so on, until it goes up and hits the other curve. Now, it would be nice to know, what does one or two cubic meters of upwelling 
per second do for us? We need another measure. We need to know how much nutrient is in the deep water. Now, I didn't find a, a lot of data on deep ocean nutrient levels, but I found a paper that said there was 2.5 millimole of phosphor, phosphate per cubic meter, and that would give us about a quarter of a gram of phosphate for every cubic meter of deep ocean water. So now I can estimate the biomass this upwelling is producing if you'll let me make three assumptions. And the first one is, can I believe this two and a half millimole of phosphate per cubic meter? And the second one is, the biomass to fertilizer ratio is 4,000 to one. I saw that mentioned in a patent and I took it. Now, that fertilizer is made up of several nutrients, so I that brings us to assumption number three, is that the fertilizer is 20% phosphate. So if I'm allowed to make those three assumptions, this one and a half cubic meters per second of upwelling will provide us with over seven kilograms of biomass per second, or 23,000 metric tons of biomass per year. To put that number in perspective, the world fish catch in the year 2000 was reported at 95 million tons, and it would take about 4,000 upwelling devices this size to add to the ocean the amount of biomass we are taking out. And that, of course, is impressive. Um, so what can we do with this upwelling? We can feed the world. We can restore marine populations, and we can sequester carbon. You can find more details and instructions on how to build your own upweller at this website that I just built, greenseaupwelling.com. Thank you. Questions? You're the first audience to hear it. So now I'm testing the idea on this audience to see what kind of response I'll get. <laughs> You're looking for venture capitalists, I take? Yes. Would you please raise your hand if you're a venture capitalist? <laughs> what would be, uh, say, for a test flight, what would be the diameter of step that you would need to get the whole 300 millimeters to test the principle? Well, the first thing I would do is make some measurements. Where is the nutrient in the ocean and what are the temperatures? Where do I want to do it conveniently? Like I was thinking, from Hawaii, it's a short distance to deep ocean. That might be a good place, but you have to have somebody build this thing. So I have to talk to mechanical engineers. Who builds stuff like this? And then you have to worry about a lot of stuff. How do you keep this thing buoyant in the water at the right level? You have to build a structure to hold it. There's a lot of planning to go. Any others? Let's give Dr. Ressler a hand once again.